I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, my guest is Arianna Huffington, author, businesswoman, and co-founder of The Huffington Post. As founder and CEO of Thrive Global, she's on a mission to improve people's mental resilience, health, and productivity. She joined me to talk about the micro steps we can take to avoid burnout, and as she says, transform our lives from struggle to grace. But first, what's ahead? Before taking office as president, Joe Biden promised 100 million vaccinations in his first 100 days in the White House. He can actually fulfill that promise, but he will have to make big changes in government vaccine policies. We all know that most state governments have botched the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines with unnecessarily complicated bureaucratic formulas. Federal guidelines are hindrances and not a help. Instead, states should have adopted a simple formula that made vaccines available to true frontline caregivers and to those people most vulnerable to succumbing to this dread disease. They could have started by vaccinating those 85 and older, then to 75 and above, and then 65. 80% of pandemic deaths are in those age ranges. After that, shots would go to people with underlying conditions. Unfortunately, most states imposed cumbersome, confusing rules that ended up with unused vaccines. This has resulted in avoidable deaths. Regarding that deadly blunder, governments then lurched in the opposite direction, declaring that anyone over 65 was eligible. The result of that hasty move is a shortage made worse by inadequate distribution points. Concerning distribution, states should follow the example of West Virginia, which, among several common-sense decisions, immediately mobilized independent pharmacies to administer vaccines. No wasted dosages there. Here, the scandal gets worse. There is no real shortage. AstraZeneca has millions of doses ready to go, but the FDA is holding up distribution because it is forcing the company to go through more testing, even though the vaccine is being safely given in Britain and a number of other countries. In addition, the AstraZeneca Oxford version does not have the cold storage challenges of the vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. You would think in this emergency, the FDA would shed its rigid bureaucratic ways to help save lives think again. Moreover, FDA foot-dragging delayed the introduction by weeks of those first two vaccines. This pandemic has been made worse by certain states, especially California, imposing, yet again, draconian lockdowns by refusing to recognize that keeping people cooped up makes the spread even worse. No wonder trust in public health officials is so low, not to mention in mandate-happy politicians who then flout their rules. Hopefully, President Biden will change that. And now, my interview with Ariana Huffington. My special guest today is Ariana Huffington. She's the founder and CEO of Thrive Global, whose goal, and I quote, is to improve people's mental resilience, health, and productivity. She works with a number of companies, such as Accenture and now Walmart, with 2.3 million employees around the world. And it's especially timely to talk with Ariana. Not only is it New Year's where we make resolutions and try to improve our lives and then always have this letdown, she and her team focus on micro steps so we don't have that sense of a failure and letdown. We can do little things each day, fall off the wagon and still make over time great improvements. And with the intensity first of the pandemic and now the political turmoil today, uh, we couldn't have a better time to talk with Ariana. 
I love how you say, uh, Ariana, that New Year's resolutions, they fall by the wayside, but you say uh, you want to prevent feelings of failure. And I love when you say you can't depend on willpower to change habits. You just got to do little things one little bit at a time. About Ariana, she's the author of 15 books, two recent ones, The Sleep Revolution, Transforming Your Life One Night at a Time, Thrive, The Third Metric, to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder, something we need right now. She's the co-founder of Huffington Post back in 2005. One of the great breakthroughs there was her recognition of using a lot of contributors, not just a few inside or a few well-known names. Uh, we at Forbes uh, truly believe in that. She also uh, took the online Huffington Post beyond just uh, politics and economics, including other sections such as one on sleep, which we'll be getting to shortly. She even found time to run for governor. And before we get to uh, the, the, these micro habits, these small, seemingly small steps, let's go uh, a little bit about your own background. You were born in Greece right after a terrible civil war. Obviously, Greek is your first language. But uh, your life seemed to show uh, one of your aphorisms is life, making it happen and letting it happen. So tell us at uh, age, I think it was 16, you saw a certain magazine cover that ended up changing your life. Tell us about that. Well, Steve, first of all, it's a great, great pleasure to be with you. Um, I well remember our first lunch in your offices many, many years, or is it decades ago? So to go down memory lane, yes, I saw a picture of Cambridge University in a magazine. I was living in Athens, Greece, in a one-bedroom apartment with my mother and sister. My mother had just separated from my father. And I got home and I told my mother I want to go there. My mother was this amazing, amazing woman who, unlike everyone else, didn't say, don't be ridiculous, you can't go there, we have no money, you don't speak English, and it's hard for English girls to get into Cambridge. Instead, she said, let's see how you can go there. I did get into Cambridge, I did get a scholarship, and that obviously changed my life. Um, so that's part of the making it happen. The letting it happen <laughs> happened soon after that when... I became president of the Cambridge Union and spoke at a farewell debate at the Union, as is the tradition at Cambridge and Oxford. And an English publisher happened to see the debate, which was televised, and wrote to me and asked me if I would write a book on the views I had expressed in the debate, which were about the changing role of women. And uh, I wrote back and I said, I can't write. And he wrote back and he said, can you have lunch? And he took me to lunch and offered a modest advance for me to try and write that book. And that was the letting it happen part. I did write that book. And that was the beginning of my unexpected writing career. Amazing. And uh, by the way, I want our uh, viewers and listeners to uh, realize what an extraordinary achievement it was for you to become president of the Cambridge Union. In uh, Britain, the Oxford Union and the Cambridge Union are seen as incubators for uh, great people. It's seen as a very prestigious thing to be on. And not only did you uh, make that team, but you also became president. And for somebody, as you said at the time, had a deep accent, 
to not only with English as your second language, you learned English to really get into Cambridge, to become uh, head of the Cambridge Union, absolutely remarkable. Your career progressed, you were a journalist, commentator, author, activist, ran for governor of California, got married, got divorced. You also then uh, co-founded the Huffington Post. But in 2007, in the midst of getting the Huffington Post running, you were working 18 hours a day, stress, 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 going uh, 150 miles a minute. So tell us what happened on that day. You've talked about it when you suddenly had a collapse in 2007 and how that, again, ended up changing your life. So absolutely, I'll tell you about that, but I also want to make it clear that my life up to 2007 was by no means uh, just a series of successes. <laughs> there were plenty of failures along the way. And I say that, Steve, because I feel that once people succeed, people bury their failures. And um, I think it's important for successful people to talk about their failures because it encourages others to take risks. As my mother used to say, failure is not the opposite of success. It's a stepping stone to success. After that first book, which was a big success, I, I wanted to write a book on the crisis in political leadership which unfortunately nobody wanted to publish. So it was rejected by 37 publishers before it was finally published. So that's just one of the many failures along the way I could dwell on. But the 2007 incident did change my life because I collapsed, I hit my head on my desk and broke my cheekbone. And as I went from doctor to doctor and from MRI to echocardiogram, the diagnosis of everybody was, you are suffering from burnout. Now, 2007, burnout was not a term widely circulated. Now it is. And in fact, last year, the World Health Organization declared burnout an occupational hazard, described it, and, um, and it's become now part of our vocabulary. But in 2007, um, I found myself studying the phenomenon and recognizing that, that I was not the only one afflicted from it, that it was actually afflicting millions of people around the world, that it was truly a global epidemic. And that's what prompted me to start covering these issues, including, as you mentioned, sleep and recharging and the connection between recharging and productivity. By the time I left the Huffington Post in 2016, over 50% of our traffic and um, the vast majority of our revenue was not coming from politics. It was coming from, um, from all these issues that we're covering about how to live lives that were healthier and more productive at the same time. So in 2016, you uh, started Thrive. Walk us through, you, you point out an astonishing fact that 75% of our illnesses relate to anxiety and worry. And if we can deal with those, we're going to be as a whole population, as individuals, and as a population as a whole, infinitely more healthy. And you make the important point, you're not going to get rid of stress or anxiety, but how you handle it you love analogies. Uh, one I like is the steam engine. You got to let off steam from time to time or you will blow up. But steam can be uh, productive if you know how to uh, not let, as you say, accumulate. 
And one of the things that has led to the success of Thrive and the micro steps, which we'll get into, is you recognize the power of storytelling. We would think uh, in the Western culture with the Bible and Jesus and the power of the parables that we'd see the power of storytelling, but too often in public health and elsewhere, it's dry statistics, don't do this, don't do that. Maybe a quick before and after picture, which doesn't do much good. So uh, how, how did you come to recognize? Is it your uh, days as a debater in the Cambridge Union where you learned the power of words to change hearts and minds? How did you come to see the power of stories and then uh, how you're applying it to the, the people you work with? Well, so much to unpack here. Well, first of all, I decided to leave the Huffington Post and launch Thrive because I wanted not just to raise awareness, which I could have continued doing through a media company, but I wanted to help people change behavior. And that's why we started immediately building a product, an app, a platform um, that could help people go from where they are to where they want to be. And as you know, Steve, behavior change is extremely hard and we cannot depend on willpower alone. So we brought together the power of microsteps, science-based microsteps that we call too small to fail literally breaking down new behaviors into the smallest possible components and beginning to build a success muscle around them and then bringing the power of storytelling because you have to touch the heart and not just the mind to achieve behavior change. And as you said, the data has been known for a long time, but it's not shifted behavior. We've known for a long time that chronic diseases, 75% of them, um, are the result of lifestyle choices and behavioral choices. But people have a very hard time changing. I mean, when you see the skyrocketing increases in diabetes or hypertension, the connection between what are we eating, how much sugar and processed foods, how much are we sleeping, how much are we moving, and these diseases has not been made super clear. And even when it's made clear, people have a hard time changing. So that's been the motivation behind launching a company focused entirely on behavior change. But as you said, recognizing that storytelling is key. And we use storytelling in two ways. One is to bring in to the app stories of people who've made these changes and also encourage everybody on the journey to share their stories. Because when people journal or share their story, it reinforces the changes they're making. And what I'm really excited about is bringing this, not just to people like you and me who now have the luxury to be working from home, but to frontline workers. In our work with Walmart, for example, we've had amazing successes with people working in the stores, successes that are medical, even though we're not a medical company. Through these micro steps or one better choice, as we call them, people have reversed diabetes. They have been able to get off their hypertension medication. So it's really powerful to see the connection between our daily habits and our health and then let's also talk between our daily habits and our performance, which is another big delusion 
we at Thrive are trying to abandon the delusion that in order to succeed, you have to power through exhaustion. You have to be always on. And that burnout is the price you pay for success. Well, let's uh, then start with the subject you wrote a book about, both uh, going over the science and then how you can uh, make changes, is uh, sleep. As you pointed out in the past, it was once seen as almost a badge of honor if you uh, didn't get much sleep but just kept going. Fatigue was a sign that you were working hard and achieving success. And you make the point that you actually perform better when you get seven, eight, nine hours of sleep. And these stories of people who get by in four hours, yes, maybe one, one and a half percent are those uh, people who can get by on four, but most of us, 99% of us, can't. Walk us through in terms of how we can actually get sleep and uh, starting at night and maybe make reference to a wonderful thing you wrote, Taking Off on Good Night Moon, a story that every parent reads to their children. You uh, had Good Night Smartphone. So how do we turn off at the end of the day? How do we get that smartphone out of our lives so we can sleep? So sleep is um, one of the journeys in our product, and it's um, a foundational journey. As a culture, we are kind of rediscovering the importance of sleep. In fact, the first scientific sleep center was launched at Stanford in the 1970s. So it's a relatively new science but very much validating the ancient wisdom around sleep. And as you said, Steve, about one to one and a half percent of the population has a genetic mutation for which people can be tested and doesn't need a lot of sleep. But the vast majority of us need seven to nine hours. I mean, I'm an eight-hour girl, and I prioritize it now. I mean, 95% of the time I get it. You know, I'm wearing my aura ring to track it. And, um, you know, there are always times when something happens and you don't get it. And that's not what matters. What matters what happens chronically. Right now, with COVID, with the political turmoil, people have a particularly hard time sleeping. In fact, even a new term has been coined, coronasomnia. And um, we have a lot of micro steps to deal with that. And the most important micro step is to pick a time at the end of the day when you declare an end to your working day. That means an end to answering emails and texts, an end to scrolling through social media or even Forbes.com for news and Declare it an end. And I say declare it an end because the truth, Steve, is there is no end. Each one of us could spend the entire night handling things or doom scrolling, as it's called, or binging on Netflix. There are endless distractions. And um, as Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist philosopher, said, it has never been easier to run away from ourselves. It takes a lot of um, planning to make sure you don't run away from yourself. And that starts with a micro step of turning off your phone and charging it outside your bedroom. Of course, uh, easier said than done. And uh, talk about the uh, uh, playful bed you had where uh, you'd get in the habit, you put your kids to bed, 
and you put the phone to bed as well. <laughs> okay, Steve, I'm going to send you one. It's a little bed that's really a charging station. It can charge up to 10 phones and iPads. So it's great for the whole family uh, to practice phone hygiene. And it has a little blankie and you put the phone under the blankie and it charges during the night while you are recharging. And it comes in light wood and mahogany. I think probably mahogany will go better with your furniture. But it's actually a ritual that can support a new habit. As you said, it's easier said than done. So we wanted to provide some support to make it happen. And when people say that, well, I'm a leader, I get phone calls in the middle of the night about some crisis, I need the phone by my bedside, you recommend something that I'm holding in my hand, a flip phone. Exactly. I just did um, a webinar with the 35 leaders who run Accenture. We did that closer to the beginning of COVID, and they were all up all night handling things. And that's when I said, you are now expected to operate at your best as a leader. Maintenance is no longer enough. You need to be your most creative and your most innovative, and nothing kills innovation and creativity faster than exhaustion. You know, when we're exhausted, we can still be transactional. We can still do mundane things. But leadership right now is not about mundane things. The one book I have on my nightstand is Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. And I know you've studied and written a lot about ancient philosophers, Steve. So I'm sure you know that this was a great example of a Stoic philosopher who was also an emperor for 19 years, during which he had to deal with a pandemic, the plague. He had to deal with the invasions, betrayals, everything you can imagine. And yet he wrote this book, which is truly a leadership manual about how to be in the eye of the hurricane and remain unflappable no matter what. So whenever my friends who have big jobs tell me, well, Ariana, that's all very good, but I have a big job and I can't afford to do that, I tell him, well, you know, Marcus Aurelius had a big job. He was the emperor of Rome. Is that big enough for you? And he did it. Well, in terms of sleep, you talk about the power of naps in terms of recharging ourselves and talking about big jobs. Winston Churchill, saving civilization in World War II, uh, took a nap. Exactly. In fact, coined the term power nap. So you get to uh, bed, you wake up in the middle of the night. What, do you, uh, what are some of the things you suggest to uh, deal with uh, these wake-ups and not let it uh, ruin your night? Well, first of all, People wake up in the middle of the night because they have not had a transition to sleep. So their brain wakes them up. So the key, first of all, to preventing waking up in the night, during the night, is having a transition to sleep. And my transition is about 30 minutes, but start with five. And I can tell you my transition. Everybody has to design theirs. My transition includes a hot shower or a hot bath which is not for cleanliness. It's almost like a, a ritual of washing away the day. 
because at the end of the day, we still have a lot of incompletions, problems that haven't been solved, the projects that are not done. So we need to put all that away and be able to surrender to sleep. And then I like to read things that have nothing to do with work history, biographies. And, and, and you do it with a hard book. And I do it with a hard book. No iPads. There's nothing like a hard book. I love underlining. And then, you know, if you begin to get drowsy, you can just let it drop on the floor and it doesn't crack. And, um, and then if you still wake up in the middle of the night, which happens to all of us, even with the best transitions, the key is to not be upset about it, <laughs> but to use that time to meditate. I like to use that time to meditate. And um, I remember reading that the Dalai Lama wakes up at three in the morning to meditate. So I feel, hey, if the Dalai Lama thinks that's the best time to meditate, I can do that. And they've done a lot of studies, Steve, that show if you have two groups and you tell one group your goal is to go to sleep, and you tell the other group your goal is to stay awake in the middle of the night, the group that has been asked to stay awake will fall asleep faster. <laughs> well, you uh, point out that sleep is like uh, the washing machine. It has different cycles, and you got to let the whole thing be done, or you're going to have wet clothes in the morning. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, there's so much science around sleep. That's why I have 50 pages of scientific evidence that explains why sleep is as much for the brain as it is for the body. It's the only time that our brain can get rid of the toxins that accumulate during the day. But what we have found, Steve, and it's one of my favorite features in the Thrive Up, is that reducing cumulative stress during the day also helps you be able to sleep at night. Well, this gets to uh, one of the other things you uh, emphasize, um, and that is the importance of uh, breathing, that uh, it's only a matter of seconds or a minute, but you can use it to uh, make those crucial pauses during the day that allow you to refresh and not let the stress accumulate more than it should. Exactly. Yeah, this is the feature called RESET, which is based on the latest neuroscience that shows that while stress is unavoidable, cumulative stress is avoidable. And it is cumulative stress that's the killer. It's not stress. So in 60 to 90 seconds, we can course correct from stress. Literally, it takes 60 to 90 seconds for the cortisol hormone, which is the stress hormone, to leave our bodies. In our app, you have this reset 60 seconds. Some are preloaded, like um, to breathe consciously for 60 seconds or to have 60 seconds stretch breaks or to take 60 seconds to remember what you are grateful for because gratitude is a great antidote to anxiety. But my favorite thing is creating a personalized reset that you can play for 60 seconds during any time of stress. So mine, for example, has pictures of my children and my favorite quotes, a favorite piece of music, landscapes, and in 60 seconds, in the middle of stress, 
you are suddenly reminded of what you love about your life, what you are grateful for. I'd love you to create your reset, Steve, with all these beautiful grandchildren. And uh, that's really what helps you move from one neuropathway of stress to another neuropathway, from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system. I throw all this science around because it's important for all the intellectuals listening to your podcast to know that this is not warm and fuzzy. This is rigorous. This is data-driven. That's the way we are changing our culture. So it has a very practical uh, impact, better performance, better decision-making, less sickness, less turnover and the like. Now, critics will say, oh, that's fine. You've achieved great success. You can tell us, turn off the day. But mother with small kids who wake up or fight during the day or come and wake the parent up at nighttime, the stresses of presentations and everything, you you, uh, respond to that, that all true, but if you don't get the sleep, you're going to still burn out. So how, how, how do people who uh, don't have any luxury time deal with those uh, constant intrusions, work calls, kids, whatever? First of all, we need to separate the, the self-inflicted intrusions mm-hmm. from the things um, like the mother you mentioned with the two children waking up in the middle of the night. The self-inflicted intrusions are things that when we recognize how much better our performance would be if we were operating on all cylinders rather than running on empty, should be easier to make these changes that I mentioned. The intrusions and um, obstacles that are not of our own making are obviously much harder to deal with. And that's why... We are not talking about perfection. I mean, there are many times, I mean, when a mother of newborns is not going to be able to get the sleep she needs. We have a whole program about it, actually, at Thrive, Thriving Parenthood, to create a system of support. Like, if you're a new mother, uh, nobody kind of guides you through, what do you do? You go home, if you don't have any help, One recommendation we had, for example, is instead of having a shower before you give birth, where everybody brings you little clothes, invite them to give you vouchers. Like, I will babysit for you so you can have a nap, or I will do your grocery shopping so you can have a nap. So once we recognize the importance of these things, we need to get creative around how to make them happen during difficult periods in our lives. And you just mentioned one, but there are many, many others. And that's where community matters. You know, I'm Greek, so it's easier if you live in a, in a Greek village or even in Athens to have a support system around you. And here with a nuclear family, it's harder. With the um, destruction of neighborhoods, it's harder. So we need to create our own little tribe to support each other in difficult times. Now, one of the things you emphasize is, uh, and you've touched on a little bit, is recharging. You mentioned the the breathing, but also foods we eat, um, especially 
And I was sad to hear this because I'm waiting for science to show it's good for us. Sugar. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, you know, there are so many different approaches to food. And uh, we keep it very simple at Thrive. We say reduce sugar and reduce processed foods. That's like the key to a healthier diet. And we start with swaps. If you love um, Doritos, can you find a healthier chip? Uh, if you, I mean, if you drink all these sodas every day, can you replace them with something healthier? And we, we have an Instagram account called Thrive Zip for all these success stories with our Walmart associates. And it's really fantastic to see how creative they get. And then as you begin to see the results and lose the weight and have more energy and be able to play with your children and grandchildren, it has its own validating effect. You've also emphasized uh, connecting, focusing the brain. We touched on breathing, which you say is a form of a superpower. What are other ways that we stay connected? And uh, you say that's essential for uh, our well-being, even during a busy day. It's particularly essential now. And we launched a whole mental health and mental resilience program with Stanford based on their latest uh, brain research called Thriving Mind. It starts with the taking an assessment and identifying your stress biotype. It's really a great way to have more self-awareness. And, you know, going back to the Greeks, know thyself is absolutely critical if we're going to tap into our resilience. But also knowing those you work with, knowing those in your family, and being able to build deeper connections because you have a deeper understanding of each other and how you react to difficult times. So there are eight biotypes. I won't walk you through all of them. but a very prevalent biotype, especially right now, is a negative bias. It's people who in the middle of uncertainty, and these times have been so uncertain, immediately imagine the worst. Well, give, a, give us that uh, great quote you like from the French philosopher Montaigne. Yes, I have that quote on my desk. Montaigne said, there were many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happened. And yet our brain processes negative biases about the future, negative fantasies about the future, the same way as it processes really adverse effects. So um, that's why if we know that about ourselves, we can monitor it, we can um, schedule worry time to get the worries out of the way. Uh, my uh, dominant biotype is rumination which means going over things I did and judging them as not being good enough. And I've worked on it, and it's so much better, but nothing was more exhausting in my life than my brain beating myself up for how I said something or what I did, which is different than appropriate um, self-evaluation that we learn from and improve. This is just what I call the obnoxious roommate living in our heads. So I won't go through all the eight biotypes, but we find that when you take that assessment as a team, you learn to communicate better with each other and the same with the family. 
if you could just do a little more on uh, the importance of uh, gratitude, which also ties into uh, breathing. You wake up in the morning, you say, don't go to that phone. Start with the breathing. But when you're doing mundane things like brushing the teeth or whatever, just don't uh, let the brain idle. T t walk us through that, starting with the, when you wake up, doing the right breathing. It's only a matter of a few seconds, taking it from there, whether it's box breathing or something else. One of my favorite micro steps is taking 60 seconds in the morning before you go to your phone. Um, 72% of people sleep with their phones on their nightstand or even cuddled up with them in bed. And uh, it makes it much harder not to go straight to your phone when you open your eyes. But taking this uh, 60 second buffer to take some deep breaths or to remember what you're grateful for or to simply set your intention for the day so you're not at the mercy of what's incoming is really key. And you make the point that if you go right to the phone, that is dictating your day, not the other way around. Yes. So basically, we become completely reactive to what the world wants of us instead of what we want to create, what we want to build. And this is more important than ever during these times that we are going through right now. In fact, Steve, um, this is really the one silver lining of this time, which is that we were already dealing pre-pandemic with the skyrocketing chronic diseases, a mental health crisis, an epidemic of burnout, growing income inequalities. And we have an opportunity now to make different decisions and to make better decisions at every level of our society and, and not just go back to the old normal, but uh, create a, a better world. You made that wonderful comparison in terms of working during the day of the airplane. You point out that pilots will say the airplane is always going off course, but they have devices where it immediately gets back on course. During the day, we're going to go off course, but don't let it throw you into a, into a mountainside. Just make those quick course corrections. Is that breathing or doing it between stress meetings? Yes, it's um, any kind of reset whether it's breathing or focusing on gratitude or playing your personalized reset, any pause that prevents stress from becoming cumulative. There is a lot we can learn from gazelles. I love gazelles. They're my favorite animal because you see what happens to their nervous system. You know, if they're followed by a lion, if they're facing a danger, obviously, they have all the stress response or the fight or flight response that's necessary when we're in danger. But immediately after, they just go back to grazing and it's the nervous system is reset. If we can get to that point of switching from fight or flight to actually being centered and finding that place of peace and, and wisdom in us, life is transformed. Um, I call it life being transformed from struggle to grace. 
going to uh, when you uh, get a client like Verizon or uh, now Walmart, what happens? They say, okay, we need to change our culture. You sit on the board of Uber, which had the challenge of a toxic uh, culture. So when you go in, what happens? Do you talk to the managers? Do you go to teams? How, 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 how does it unfold? Well, first of all, what is interesting, Steve, is that now all these issues of well-being, health, mental resilience are not just the province of the HR department. They are not a luxury. They are not a nice to have. CEOs, CFOs, boards realize that the mental health and the health generally of their employees are absolutely foundational to the success of the company. So when we come in, we don't want to simply check the box of offering a resilience app or um, a well-being program, but looking at the whole culture and how can we make a difference both through the app that we provide, which is like a coach in your pocket, but also supplementing it with almost an internal marketing campaign where people in the company feel that they have cultural permission to make these changes. Just to give you an example, when we launched our product, including the mental resilience part with Accenture, and to all the 500,000 employees in eight languages around the world, we launched it with a video from Julie Sweet, their CEO, saying, I'm, te- I'm doing this with my team. I invite you to join. That made all the difference. Leadership buy-in. Exactly. Leadership buy-in, cultural permission. Uh, when we launched um, at Walmart, we are both part of their officer onboarding. You know, onboarding is a great moment to introduce these micro steps because everybody who comes in, this is the beginning of their journey in a new company, they want to understand the culture. But we also launched it at the associate level in the stores. So it's a whole cultural outreach and not just a benefit. And if you look at what's happening now post-pandemic, the employee experience is going to become more and more important the way customer experience dominated the last decade. Now, in terms of uh, focusing on uh, the tasks at hand, one of the things you do is you don't allow devices in meetings. When you come to the meeting, you're at the meeting, you're not gonna be looking down at your uh, smartphone. Yes, our point is if you have something more important to do, don't come to the meeting. What that does, Steve, is it makes meetings shorter and people are participating. One of the things that we need to change is people coming to a meeting and then being read to, you know, putting up a presentation and walking you through slide by slide. So can we all assume everybody can read and can read it in advance? We don't want to be read to. There's so much inefficiency in meetings. And that's one of the things we're working with and the managers of many companies to make meetings more efficient and to encourage people to give direct feedback. The number one cultural value uh, we believe in is what we call compassionate directness. When people 
are afraid to be direct, when they sit on resentments, then resentments fester and become a toxic culture. And also uh, getting across that when you have these uh, sessions, it's not just about gripes, but also uh, can be about ideas. Absolutely. Not just about gripes. Thank you for raising that. If you are going to build an ownership culture, uh, you can't have people who show up as victims. You need people who show up as owners, who um, recognize that um, there are always obstacles and uh, limitations. And the question is, how can you overcome them? In terms of uh, renewal, we talked about getting up in the morning, but vacations, you've made the point it's not the length of a vacation that counts. It's what you do in that vacation or not do, whether you really get recharged or whether it's just a lighter, still stressful version of uh, working at the office or working at home. Well, that's part of the whole big cultural shift that we are in the middle of. So many people really believe that if they're not always on, something terrible is going to happen. And this is like minimizing the incredible treasures of innovation and creativity we have in us that are much harder to access when we are exhausted and we don't give ourselves that time to recharge. Our unofficial motto at Thrive is onward, upward, inward. You have to allow yourself time to go inward, to reflect, to read, to meditate, uh, to be silent in the middle of, of noise in order to be able to show up as your best. You have a great uh, saying from Thoreau. It's not what's in back of us. It's not what's in front of us. It's what's uh, in essence inside of us. Yes, exactly. And sometimes we forget that and we're living in a culture which is very driven by what's outside of us. And unfortunately, the prevalence of social media has made it harder to allow any time to go inward, which of course has been part of every ancient tradition. We, we try at Thrive to bring together modern science with ancient wisdom because modern science is validating ancient wisdom, whether it's the Stoics, or the Tao, or Zen, or the Bhagavad Gita, they all basically say the same thing, that there is this place of wisdom, peace, and strength in us. We all have access to it by virtue of our birthright, but we need to give ourselves some time to be able to reach it. Now, uh, give us uh, one of your sayings about when you approach life, see it as a, more as a positive rather than uh, the negative. My favorite quote, my favorite quote by Rumi, which is, live life as though everything is rigged in your favor. And it's kind of interesting looking back at our lives, and certainly looking back at my life, so many things that uh, went wrong were actually things that allowed other things to go right or um, so many things that I wanted turned out to be things that I was lucky I didn't get. And But it's very hard to 
to see all that as you are going through life. Life often only makes sense looking backwards. <laughs> Maybe not even then. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts before we go on a couple of things. One is uh, social media. I think it was Matt Ridley, uh, author of a number of books, including The Rational Optimist. He said, uh, sometimes these great technological breakthroughs can have very real downsides. It doesn't mean we uh, not do them, but he pointed out the invention of the printing press led to the rise of Martin Luther and a century and a half of religious wars in Europe. The automobile we all know about, radio, great thing, but also made possible the dictators of the uh, 20s and 30s. Social media today, is it exacerbating, making worse? The uh, divisions, uh, political divisions that we're facing today, creating a level that back in the days of letters to the editor, you didn't have this kind of a constant screeching, everyone yelling. Give us your thoughts on social media and how we uh, not tame it, but make it an instrument for good instead of everyone uh, screaming at each other and not listening anymore. It has to be very deliberate, Steve, as we have seen at the moment, especially because of what is called confirmation bias. Social media has exacerbated a certain tribalization of our politics, where you look at people you disagree with, not just as people you disagree with, not just as opponents, but as enemies. And, um, and that is poisoning our culture. But even beyond the political divisions, the total absorption in social media and the way, especially among teenagers and younger people, uh, their self-validation and self-worth is reduced down to the number of likes a post gets. And uh, life becomes a series of comparisons between their messy lives and the highlight reel of somebody else's life on Instagram. These are really dangers which are having a huge impact on mental health um, and need to be addressed now more than ever, especially since the mental health crisis has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Is it the kind of thing, it's an imperfect comparison, but automobile, great instrument, but you better learn how to drive it. Uh, how do we, uh, in effect, teach people to uh, drive social media or at least know what you should do and what you shouldn't do. At least, at least have those kinds of guide rails. Guard rails and boundaries. And if you think of it, from the moment you give your child a phone, knowing what the boundaries are, knowing phone hygiene, which includes putting your phone away from your bedroom at night, you know, these are like uh, the rules of the road. And uh, we unfortunately, are figuring them out after a lot of damage has been done. Yes, and driving speed limits do have a purpose. Even for libertarians, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which uh, you have to be careful that you don't veer into anarchy. Your thoughts on, uh, I know that you could write books on it, but the state of our culture today, some say it's trying to obliterate differences between uh, individuals or making us part of groups instead of individuals. How do you, how do you see uh, the culture unfolding today? 
Well, the, the, there is obviously a lot that has gone wrong, but I really believe, and not just because I'm a, I'm a Greek optimist at heart, that this is the opportunity to turn things around. And it starts with each individual tapping into their own wisdom and recognizing that we are all works in progress. And redemption is that the key here. There has been a tendency to assume that people are not redeemable. And at the heart of every religion and every spiritual and philosophical tradition is this concept of redemption. And every great leader we admire, whether it's Gandhi or Martin Luther King, believed that people are redeemable, including people who've committed terrible acts. This is unfortunately one of the side effects of becoming a very secular culture that has a lost connection to deeper spiritual roots. And I'm not talking about any particular religion because in the end, they all come down to the same principles. And tapping into them, even if people call themselves atheists, is available to all of us. And I believe it's central to any cultural transformation. Well, let us uh, hope that that unfolds in a constructive way. And I want to thank you, Ariana, for uh, joining us. You are in a wonderful tradition, certainly in this country, going back to Ben Franklin, trying to find ways to uh, make ourselves better each day. You, uh, your love of uh, quotes and aphorisms is an example of it. Stories, an example of it. So uh, thank you for joining us. Do you uh, have any parting words before we go? Thank you so much, Steve. I love talking with you. And I would love for you to write a piece for Forbes and for Thrive about your flip phone. <laughs> Ariana, thank you so much and uh, Godspeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.